Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 455. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the Evergreen Network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview is with Emily Chang. Emily is currently the CEO of McCann World Group China. Prior to joining McCann, Emily's been the CMO for Starbucks China, the CCO for Intercontinental Hotels Group in Greater China. She also headed up retail marketing for Apple across the APAC zone and spent the first 11 years of her career at Procter & Gamble. She's also author of the remarkable book, The Spare Room, Define Your Social Legacy to Live a More Intentional Life and Lead with Authentic Purpose. In this conversation with Emily, we discuss how she came up with her social legacy, including how she shared it with her entire household. We talk about her book, how to combine your offer and your offense, how to effectively and authentically bring your personal life into the professional sphere, the place for empathy as a leader, and much more. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com and please do consider dropping your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show with Emily Chang. Emily Chang, what a delight to have you on my show. I got a chance to listen to you speaking when I was invited by Sophie Devonshire to the Marketing Society to hear you speak based in China. And I couldn't help but think that you really are living what you say you do and, and doing it all with such a plum and success. I don't know how you describe success, Emily, but let's start with that. How about that? Describe, describe in your own words who you are and what is success for Emily Chang? Mm -hmm. How I would describe myself, the first phrase that comes to mind is servant leader. I think over time we get to roles where all we do is serve the people in our organization. So I think it, it distills the things that are important and makes the job very straightforward in that way. And also, by the way, it's, it's my very favorite thing to do. So I feel incredibly mm. blessed to be able to do the thing that I love the most. How I would define success is going to bed, my, my family has a routine. We call it HPGs, which is your high, your proud, and your gratitude. It's, it's a little bit of a mouthful, but we, every single night, and my daughter's 13 still does it with us. What was my high today? My proud and the thing for which I was grateful for. And it's a very nice way to sum up the day and to think about whether or not it was a successful day. So I guess the simple answer is if I can go to bed and identify at least one high of the day, something that I'm proud of and something I'm grateful for, it was probably a pretty well-lived day. Magnificent. Well, first of all, the funny thing is um, I start my day with gratitude and, and hope that that sort of powers me through. Perhaps I love the way that you finish the day on that because it, it sort of feels like you're, you weren't actually setting out to hit the objective. You just want to make sure it does happen almost passively at some level. I mean, obviously it's intentional, but you're not saying, well, today I must be grateful. <laughs> I do start the morning also with 15 minutes of just lying flat on my bed. You know, we can call it meditation or, or give it a name, but honestly, I'm just thinking ahead to what's going to come for the day and how I can lead into it with intention. Because I think 
the thing I used to do was I would open my phone as soon as I woke up. And what that does is it starts my day on my back foot. I'm immediately in response mode. So I like the idea of just being open to what this day is. And you know, your brain's been working all night while you sleep. So things pop into your head, which are amazing. Things make no sense, but you kind of, if you're open to it and you don't define it, you follow the path and you say, oh, that's an interesting idea. Or so-and-so just popped in my mind. Let me take part of this 15 minutes to send them a note and say, I'm thinking about them. And who knows where that leads, but I have, I have enough faith that there are things going on and that sort of I'm in tune with things and my brain is working, that that first 15 minutes of the day is really well spent. But to your point, it's not particularly defined. So it, it, it sounds a little bit kibunesque. At least you're trying to, or I, the word I use is, is another K is karma. Uh, do you, to what extent do you believe in or think about karma? I can't say I know a whole lot about it. But it seems like you live it, Emily. Um, so moving back to, I mean, the fact is you are an extremely successful CEO. You've had an amazing career. And for having been in the real world of big business, servant leader is a word that I see typically espoused mm -hmm. by consultants, you know, told to do by pundits. It's usually not something that I see actually being talked about and lived mm. at the highest end. So talk to me how you came into that and how it's been part of your success. Mm -hmm. The idea was introduced to me at Procter & Gamble by one of my life mentors, Ravi Chaturvedi. He was the one who hired me to Guangzhou in 2003. And he, uh, I think he spoke a lot at West Point about the concept. So it really is a very broadly appealing leadership concept, which I love. So I felt very lucky that it was introduced into my vernacular so early on in my career. Over time, I've moved into a couple different companies and different industries. And I think it's come to take a different dimension with each role. So starting at PNG, which is an absolutely wonderful training ground, really great um, bench building for general management, then going to Apple, it's retail. You know, you, you now no longer have to look at your retail data, but you actually are your own retail. <laughs> and you have this Yay. opportunity to engage directly with your consumers. What an absolutely amazing thing. And this is where service really comes into play because we are now in the spirit of serving everybody who like blesses us with their traffic as they come into our store to learn more about our products. And then hospitality, I was at IHG, Intercontinental Hotels Group, it's even more, you know, not only are people coming into our building, they're trusting us with their most intimate moments. They eat with us, they sleep here, they get married here, they get massages. So how do we take that mindset again and serve the people who are like blessing us with their business? And then even more so at, at IHG, I led my biggest team. It was over 5,000 people. And it transcended from customer servant leadership to people servant leadership for me. And this philosophy really became, I may never even meet all 5,000 people. I may not have the chance to engage with the front desk staff, but they are actually the most important people to deliver my brand promise. They're the ones who touch the consumer, the guest, and have a chance to create a great experience, a warm welcome, a fond farewell. So how do I then serve them, enable them, build them up so that they can do their job the best because that's where we all succeed. Mm. That's a fascinating journey that you have described where you're selling products, you're selling products 
in the retail service, then you go straight into hospitality. And ultimately now you're in a complete service business. I mean, you do, I suppose, uh, end up with 30 second spots and the like as a product. But I mean, let's call you a, a truly service business. And it's obviously they're doing good stead. I wonder in, in China, to the, what extent this message is something that carries the way you portray the marketing and adding ad, advertising that needs to happen to accompany the, the brands? I guess I work at McCann World Group, and I wouldn't say we are a traditional advertising agency. Well, certainly not, because they hired me to be the CEO, and I've never worked in an ad agency before. So clearly, the company wanted to do something different, and what a privilege to have the opportunity to try and spearhead that. So I'd say I get the opportunity to lead a creative organization. And you're right, it's just people. Our, our P&L is incredibly straightforward, and that's where servant leadership really comes to bear. People will join us if they see us doing great work and that we create an awesome work environment or the leaf because we aren't. It's incredibly straightforward. So this is, I think, a wonderful test of leadership in the sense that this culture is of my making to some degree and my leadership team that I pick up. And it's top down. It's every single person contributes to the space that we create. And I think it also speaks to intentionality. And that's something we talk about in the book too. Intentionality in the sense that how do you design your space? How do you present yourself? Because you mentioned China. China is not a particularly servant leadership type culture. Um, right. It's very top down. It's hierarchical. It's respectful. And you asked me earlier, people won't be able to see it, but you asked, am I at home or in my office? And it sometimes it's hard to tell because it's designed like a living room. I don't have a desk. I just have a, a couch and a coffee table. There's a little rug. And that's it because it's an intention. I want people to feel comfortable when they look, come in, there's not a big solid piece of furniture between me and them. There's nothing that indicates I'm higher, better, or anything else because we end up sitting side by side on the couch. I think those are all the small ways and big ways that I can introduce a slightly different way of approaching leadership, which is truly, I'm here to serve you. I just said this to a new general manager who joined us yesterday. She's like, oh, you must be very busy. I said, if I weren't serving you, I actually have nothing to do. I have nothing to do, right? We're a people business. She kind of went, oh, yeah, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> mm. Well, I'm, I'm sure you have to onboard people to this process. And, and, and also, you, you still need to establish the line of responsibility mm -hmm. because you are, at the end of the day, accountable for the bottom line. I mean, as we know how it works, right? So at times you're you, you obviously are, are fully the servant, uh, but at other times you do need to be the leader within that the the person who takes the ultimate decision, and and I I have to imagine, Emily, for the little that I know you, that the way you make that final decision uh, has brought in listening as part of it. But at the end of the day, you do need to make some tough decisions along the way. Speak to me about that sort of line where you've got to make that tough decision and how that, the, the fact that you're a servant leader informs the way you do that. Yeah. If I were to describe my leadership style, I would say, and I posted about this once, this, what might seem like an oxymoron, caringly assertive. And the thing is, I, I am very caring. I have 
a lot of empathy for the challenges that everybody faces. But if you're too caring, you can give the perception you lack clarity or direction. This can cause confusion or inefficiency in the organization. And if you get to the point where you're so empathetic, you can't see things as they really are, or you fear conflict or making a decision, then you really are ineffective. On the other hand, I would also say I am assertive. I don't mind making the call. And I like this job because I like held accountable. I, I'm the one responsible. And, you know, we, we've had to make some tough decisions sometimes. And, you know, I'll ask everyone's input and they kind of look at me like, gosh, this is such a weighty thing. And I reassure them. Mm -hmm. Yes, I want your opinion because it matters, but it's my job. It's my responsibility and it's my call at the end. So rest assured, I wanna hear your point of view, but the consequences don't fall on you, they fall on me. I think if you're too assertive though, you can be perceived as overly demanding. You can create a fear state, you can, which can cause people to stay silent, to shut down. So if you can find that right balance between caring and assertive, I think that's a pretty good place to be. I love it. I, I, I wrote a book about empathy. And and uh, and I definitely uh, subscribe to this notion that there is such a thing as too much empathy, because if mm -hmm. you just sit in your bum and listen all day, you know, there's nothing going to be done. You wrote at one point uh, about how um, your work with what you do with kids has helped you become more empathic. Mm -hmm. uh, at work, and and uh, I'd love for you to. So obviously, the spare. Let me just go back and say the spare room is a lovely book where you, with great intimacy, reveal the journey that you've been on with your family in in making this kibun, this uh, safe, uh, wonderful place in your in your room, even when you had only the one room, right? <laughs> the, the room was the spare room with your your first uh, your first uh, kid. Um, so tell us how how you make the arc between what you've been doing with this spare room concept in your family. Maybe you should describe that. And then uh, how that's made you more empathic, why that's the case. Well, it started as you, as you referenced when I was only 20 years old. And frankly, I just didn't know better. I just saw somebody in need and, and stopped impulsively and took care of her for a night, which turned into two and a week and a couple of months. And I think, you know, in many ways, I just fell into something wonderfully because it wasn't a whole lot of intentional decision-making. It was really somebody needed help and she needed the very barest thing, which was a roof over her head. And even though I only had a studio bedroom, yeah, I could give her that. And then when I met the next person, it made it much easier because I thought, oh, I've done this before and it ended really well. And then over time, I do think there's something kind of wonderful where if you're open to saying yes to things, those things will kind of find you because we haven't intentionally looked for children <laughs> or babies, mm -hmm. they've always ended up literally one stumbled onto our front porch as my husband and I were stretching after, after a run, <laughs> they, they will find you in that way, which is wonderful. And I think the other thing is it does give you a deep sense of empathy because you see how others live. You see how others have fallen in to a very different lifestyle, perhaps with one poor decision, which I could have very easily made. So, so that's true empathy where, where the very first girl, I think the reason I reacted so impulsively is, yeah, did my mother ever tell me I was worthless and I didn't get good enough grades and I should leave the house? Yeah, it wasn't because she hated me. It's just tough love. She, she wants better, more from me. And, mm -hmm. you know, this little girl took it literally. So gosh, if I'd run away, I could have ended up in exactly the same situation. So I think that reminds you that a lot of what 
you've accomplished or what you've been able to gain in life comes from luck. It comes from where you've been born and some of the choices that were made for you or some of the accidents that were simply averted, not even of your own intelligent decision-making. I think that's one. And I think the other thing is we have stayed in touch with many of the children over time. We have our 17th kid now in our home. And, and because my husband's teaching this week, I have him every morning. So it's a very live memory of other people have it so difficult. You know, I can't go to work and say anything I have to do here is challenging. When I have this little boy with this massive head that's filled with water, he can't even hold up sitting next to me, happily singing with me for one hour on my commute to work. And then this Monday, I had the opportunity to meet the last girl. Her name is Lotus in the book. If you recall her story, and please read it if you haven't, she's one of the most phenomenal young people we've met. She was 14 at the time. She's now 19 and engaged to be married. She has a job at Yay. a hotel at the front desk. And it's just, it's wonderful to see the development. I think that's a different version of empathy. It's not just reminding you of how the broader world lives, but it's a reminder of how much people can achieve and overcome. And that, that to me is very humbling. I've come to the conclusion, Emily, that life is about stumbling from one problem to another, and that without those challenges and problems, we're actually ill-equipped to, to deal with life without, without sufficient problems. And, and I, I'm sort of tempted to believe that you've opened yourself up to these recurring challenges because, I mean, at the end of the day, they are challenging. You almost every time seem to say, uh-oh, did I do the right thing? There's a, there's a, there seem, you, you seem to espouse, or talk about a little bit of doubt at some point mm. about what you're doing. And, and I think that's so wholesome to admit that. But also it, it expresses how it is really a challenge to introduce somebody into the house. And that one time where she goes away and you think she's stolen everything and left you. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and the types of thought, and you, then, you, then you finally move from being cynical to optimistic. I, I have to imagine, Emily, that you have, along with open, an element of spontaneity. Would you say that that's true? Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's why I've also married my husband, because we are such opposites. Uh, literally, I'm Myers-Briggs, I'm ENTJ, and he's ISFP. <laughs> uh, I think I'm, I'm a very, uh, my, my daughter always says, Mom, you're the optimist, he's the pessimist, and I'm the realist. <laughs> uh-huh. and, I'm and an ENTJ as well, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah, I think optimism, I think maybe the other thing would be um, agility which is not giving up or not throwing in the towel at the first sign of trouble, but saying, okay, I can probably flex to this and give it another shot. How am I going to make this work? Right. Um, So Emily, in, in the spare spare room, you, you describe this offer and offense Mm -hmm. concept, this construct to come up with your social legacy. I would, I mean, I, I, I was like that. It really is. It was smart. Uh, so I'm wondering, how did Emily Chang come up with that? Were, were there influences that brought you to that? Because it's a very powerful and well-constructed method to, for, for, for individuals. As I followed it. I sometimes had trouble actually plugging in what it was since I've done my own work on my purpose and all that. So I was trying to reconfigure into your system to really go through the process. Mm. But I was wondering how you came up with it, Emily. 
but well, thank you. That's very kind. I will say uh, it was through TEDx because I started with the idea of telling stories from our spare room. And perhaps it was going to be more of a the moth or an anthology of some sorts. And then I was asked if I'd be interested in doing TEDx Shanghai. And I thought, oh, that's that's amazing. Maybe it's not a book. Maybe it's storytelling in a different way. And not all TEDx is run the same, but this one is incredibly rigorous through the full nine month process. And it, they just pushed me and pushed me to dig deeper. What is, what is the story worth telling? What do you really want to tell people? And I started realizing it really is more than sharing stories. It's a call to action. Look, I, I know you may not have a spare room or you might not want to invite people into your house, but you have something else. And I think the more I started shaping the idea for the TEDx, the more it occurred to me that instead of trying to convince everybody else that your thing is the thing, how liberating and powerful would it be for everybody if we all found our thing and then we all found our tribe of people who share the same thing? Could that accelerate progress in a very different way? And so we started to have these conversations. And then I realized as I was talking about the TEDx speech through the process, people tended to fall in one of two camps. They either generally know what they can offer, they know what they're good at, they know the resources they have on hand, but they don't really know where to direct it. Or they know the thing that pisses them off. They know the thing they want to go fix or get involved in, but they don't know how to get started. So that's really how simply it came together in a Venn diagram. And I think my background's in, in science and math. So generally my brain works in either X, Y axes or Venn diagrams. So that's what it was. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, uh, in personal reveal, my trickier part of the deal was I, I know my offer. The question is, what is my offense? And uh, and absolutely, you know, feel myself as in one part of the, that gang than the other. So where I where I, I often talk about is this notion of bringing your whole self to work. Mm-hmm. And and you write about that. You 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 talk about your lovely experience at IHG with Kenneth, who mm-hmm. clearly through his personality enabled you to do that. Yeah. You are the CEO of McCann Worldwide. You obviously now are, are have the the reins in your hand. The challenge is for most people, they're not the top dog. And and the question then becomes: how do you know? how much person, personality, personal items I can bring into work to be your whole self, because I, there's, there's always got to be a limit. And the whole self, it's like whole self minus the limit, right? Mm. <laughs> I guess I'll speak from where I am today. And it's different because you're at different companies, different cultures, different degrees of cultural ethos match. And different levels. Let's be let's be realistic. You know, we were talking about work life integration earlier today at lunch, and it's not really fair for me to say you should manage your schedule. Go home when you go home, because I'm the CEO. Mm-hmm. I, I get to kind of dictate that, and it's not very empathic to tell somebody else who's buried in work, <laughs> "Hey, just go home, manage your schedule." So, yeah. with the sensitivity that people are in different places, I would say I try very hard to bring my full self to work. People do have lines, people have their own comfort. And one of the things, one of my TEDx talks was about my discomfort index. Mine's very high. I don't mind feeling very uncomfortable. In fact, I quite like it because it means I'm stretching. And when you stretch, you, you get to kind of find new batteries and redefine your space, your sphere of influence in this case. So 
So I have decorated my office very differently. Um, I also, by the way, don't have a, a window because I've given all the good window seats to all the, the younger mm. people. And that's an intention. Um, and, and at first they weren't comfortable. They were like, oh, you're in a small one in the middle. And I will say this is a lovely location, but the, the building's quite old. So the ventilation is terrible and it gets really hot in here. So yes, I'm a little bit uncomfortable. And sometimes I found, especially in a Chinese culture, it makes others uncomfortable, but it was an intentional decision. And I want to be authentic and say, gosh, I'm not here in this room that often. You guys work so hard. Of course, you should have the better space. And, you know, once you get over that discomfort, maybe you're going to appreciate it. <laughs> I will also say uh, Wayne is the boy that we are taking care of now. And I, I have him every morning uh, this week, as I said, previously, I had him for a whole day. And I chose instead of finding a babysitter to bring him to work. People may not always be comfortable meeting a boy with hydrocephalus who makes unusual noises and can't really speak or move his head, but I think it's a good thing. It lets people know I'm a human and I am caring, assert caring the assertive. Some people might see more of the assertive side. So maybe it's good for them to see the caring side, you know, and it's always this, this um, back and forth. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Where you lead by showing your personality I mean, obviously, in your organization, it's easier because you are showing that personal side. But if you're a minion, a middle manager, mm. and you don't have a Kenneth above you mm. or an Emily Chang, how does one then bring that leadership quality, servant leader quality, when above you it's not the same? Is it, is it something that can happen, or do you just need to change organizations at that point? I mean, it sounds negative, but my immediate reaction is maybe you need to change organizations. I have been in one role where I didn't work for a servant leader or somebody who valued that. I will say initially, I didn't have an issue. And actually I quite found my purpose in that organization thinking that can be the role I fill. But it's very hard to constantly give and defend and protect if nobody's ever got your back. So I learned it, it can be done and I can add a lot of good, but perhaps it's not sustainable for the long term. And I don't think it was very good for me um, from a spirit or mental wellness standpoint. So how about this notion of I want to go from social, your own personal purpose to the one in the family. Mm. And I would love for you to describe that, because at the end of the day, this is Emily Chang's. Mm. A version of it uh, where you offer your offense, which is deeply a personal offense at some level, it has to be personal. Then how does that become the family social legacy or at least shared? Because do they all speak the same language or do they, does your husband have a little bit of a different slant on this? I feel incredibly lucky. My husband was my boyfriend for the very first girl, Leah. And so that was actually when I decided to marry him, even though he married young and I did not think I was going to be somebody who married young, but we very much are aligned. And I think that has become both individually something that gives us a deep sense of satisfaction in the way we live our lives, but also as a couple, it really brings us together and it gives us 
something really meaningful to talk about besides work and besides our own immediate family. It gives us things that allow us to test the boundaries, challenge our values, and really question, are we putting our money where our mouth is? I'll also say, and this is a little bit vulnerable, my daughter has always grown up in that space. So she didn't know any better. It was really an interesting observation when the book came out. She's like, why is this a story worth telling? And I said, well, other people don't really have kids in their spare room. She's like, they don't. (laughs) And it was a realization for her because I had underestimated not clarifying that this is something different. And, And the reason it's a little bit vulnerable is we have Wayne in our house now. And she's, she's not loving it. It's the first time. Now, like I said, he he is loud. So he he disrupts a very harmonious, you know, peaceful family and home. Mm-hmm. The second is she's now 13. She has a lot of homework that she wants to do uninterrupted. And she's at a different life stage as well. So I would say probably this is the first time we have not all three been completely in lockstep. Um, Minky and I spend a lot more time with Wayne than she does. But to her credit, she's trying. And she'll come over and, you know, out of the blue, she made him a toy because she could tell he gets really interested in things that change color and move. And and I thought that was very lovely. So we're trying to extend grace and give her space, understanding she's at a different life stage. And then also just watch as she figures out her own relationship with him. Well, she's certainly been instrumental in in allowing you to go forward, it seems in, in certain of the other instances where she kind of opened the door and said, yeah, come on, what are you doing? Come on, mom, what do you, what do you, come on, what if it were me? Yeah, exactly. I, exactly. So I, I remember what I wanted to say about Jason, 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 was um, that he was, he kind of, I don't want to say he reprimanded you, but he put you back in your age when he said, we can't be friends. Mm-hmm. And that hierarchy thing I was thinking about, we're, you know, we're talking about the Chinese culture. Of course, it's fairly common in Asia in general, the hierarchical approach and, and the notion of service in some countries and some cultures certainly is not there. Uh, it, it's um, almost like a, a dirty thing to be a servant in some cultures. Um, I, I can speak from my own experience in a cosmetics organization. Um, so now we've, talked about how you were fortunate to have it happen that your husband and you met early and you kind of constructed it together. I I have to imagine, Emily, in your personal life, it's kind of filled with meaningfulness. Uh, and, And how do you then deal with trite banalities? Your dinner conversation. Oh, what do you think of the weather, Emily? (laughs) I don't feel like I have a lot of in all conversations around me, if yeah. I'm honest. Uh, uh, I, I, that's what I'm imagining. I mean, because it, it, it just fill your life is filled with this meaning and this legacy component. That is the idea of purpose. So, and then the end of your day, your FHG or I can't remember, PhD <laughs> or something. HPG, yeah. What was it again? HPG. <laughs> HPG. Um, you, you have that at the end of every day. Uh, but and and yet we have to have small talk. It, it exists. It's a serves a purpose. You know, just let's say pragmatically yes. speaking. And I feel like I also have striven, strove to have as much meaningfulness as I can fill every part of my day. I have a compass in front of me. It, it reminds me to follow my north, to be on my moral compass as much as possible every day. And yet, you, there are there is meaningless 
things. And sometimes you've got to just do what you got to do. And do you, do you feel that's still a necessary part of your life or do you just get, you roll your eyes inside? How do you deal with that? Maybe I just have a different view of it. I guess, I guess it's only boring if you let it be boring <laughs> because because if if somebody's making small talk, maybe it's not meaningless to them, you know, or if something is really bothering them that doesn't seem particularly bothersome, I suppose if I approach that as uh, trite, then I'm making a judgment, I'm passing a judgment and saying that is not worthy of being bothered. But if someone's bothered, I guess, I guess it's the heart that goes first and says, well, it doesn't strike me as trite because it's, it's hurting this person. I can't say I'm always that way, but I, I also can't remember a time in recent history where, where I rolled my eyes or felt somebody was being trite or superficial because everyone's at different levels. And you know, also in China, we have a lot of very young people who work in our organization at MRM, McCann Relationship Marketing. That agency is our digital and social agency. We have a hundred plus people and the average age is 26. So the life stage is different. And before you get married, you oftentimes live with your family. So your experience set, your worldview, a lot of it is just very different. And I guess it doesn't strike me as trite. It just strikes me as a different perspective. I had a uh, prior CEO of MRM on my show. Um, that just reminded me. But uh, yeah, well, that I feel uh, well and truly chastised. No, I feel I, 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 no, 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 don't feel, don't feel sorry. I, I'm now thinking about myself. So they, hey, listen, that's good. I like to learn every day. That's a beautiful thing. All right. So we've now talked about, let's say, Emily, with your family, social legacy. We've talked about how to be a servant leader in the organization. The thing that oftentimes is, let's say, also challenging, is bringing your personal purpose into a business. And, and it's one thing to craft if you're the entrepreneur and mm-hmm. you just kind of just roll one into the other. But you sure. also need to make sure that what you're doing in your personal life at some level overlaps with what you're doing in your work. So let's yeah. first of all start with how that rolls for Emily Chang. And then we're going to talk about how that should happen for others. Well, when you ask the question of if you're not working for a servant leader and the organization doesn't match, you know, my, my initial reaction was you should probably find House. a different place. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that really is critical is being in a place where you can be yourself and where you can integrate who you are with the workplace. And it not only is acceptable, but it's encouraged and appreciated and valued. So with the case of McCann, I love that the company statement is we want to help brands earn a meaningful role in people's lives. That's lovely. And and a lot of the work that I saw, not having ever worked in a creative agency before, was really inspiring. It was uh, immunity bracelet in in Asia. It was disables for IKEA. And and these are the types of... um, It's not even a brand story. These are the types of narratives and experiences and value adds that come with a brand, but make life better. And I think that's really wonderful. So we do sort of select the pitches that we take and the clients that we wanna work with because life's too short. And again, if I want a team of happy, thriving people, I can't put them on work that is um, really not touching them or sits against their moral values. 
you know, or work with people who are really diminishing to them. So that that's an important way that I think I need to bring my personal self into work because I hold myself accountable to making sure that that fit is there for everybody who comes into work. And, and that goes to a sense of belonging. This is super important to me. This is the whole idea of kibun. If, if I want to be responsible and feel proud that I've created a space where everyone belongs, I need to think really hard about what might be blocking them from feeling a sense of belonging. What are the little things or the big things, the hard things or the soft things that have kept people from feeling, yeah, this is my home and I'm happy to come into this place. Wow. Well, I can't, I have this definite urge to apply to work for you. Um, it, it feels such like a, a really great space. So when you're hiring people, mm-hmm. obviously you have a lot of people, where do you insert the equation that you are right to belong here in the interview process? How, how do you, because I mean, the, you know, competency, let's see your book, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. But then how do you make the the fit where is, where do you feel the the equation of value um, of personal purpose fits in with your McCann purpose and and how do you do that in the interview because obviously it's just one you know a series of talks perhaps but it's very hard to extract that so I'm wondering how you have architected that in the interview process. So this is a thing that I sort of obsess about, which is interviewing, the art of interviewing. I just gave a training on this last week to my team mm. because this is the most important thing we do. And how often do we have interviews on our calendar and we just run through them and then we pop off some feedback to HR? This is the biggest investment we make and making the wrong one has knock-on effects. So I believe very strongly that we should be very intentional and strategic about every interview. Who interviews first? Are there times when it ought to be a panel interview? What's the setting of the interview? Context. How long should the interview be? Do we set um, questions in advance? And, and the answer for each of those questions is it depends. It depends on the person and what I want to learn about them and where they're coming from and what they want to learn about me. But I'm very intentional in interviews. So if I'm meeting somebody, I, I almost never ask the traditional interview questions. In, in fact, I kind of have this first thing, which is, what interests you? What do you want to do? What, like, I, I want to understand big picture. What's your vision? So that I can kind of have a sense of how this role fits in with that. Because it's a question of fit. This isn't, are you good enough for me and my job? This is, will you thrive here? And will you love working here? And could you see yourself here long-term? And this industry is new for me, but long-term is not something I would use to describe many careers. And I will say at at McCann, there are a lot of employees who've been here 10 years, 20 years. One of the first things I did was create recognition for people who've been here for so long, because what an incredible accomplishment to be at any company, much less a creative agency for 20 years. So that's really important. And then I will say, if there's somebody who's striking me, perhaps is overly confident, or I have a question about their culture fit, I'll throw in a sideways question. Like, I'll just kind of randomly say, this is something I've done twice now. You know, the toilets were blocked in the bathroom yesterday and we couldn't find anyone to fix them. If you went into the bathroom, what would you do? Because you can't guard your initial reaction. And there was somebody, I'll tell you, in an HR function who I really quite liked. Second interview, I'd chosen a coffee shop purposely to make it more casual because I wanted to dig into the, the culture fit. I asked this question and she had, her facial expression had a visceral response. It went, ugh. Ugh. 
Yeah. And I have to say, after investing probably four hours into this person and really thinking through, she's one of my final candidates, I was done. Because, because that says you're so grossed out by doing something that might be seen as menial to support people, that's probably not a great fit. So questions left of center are great because they help us assess those um, visceral responses. And it gives you some, look, I don't need everybody to clean toilets. That's not the point. <laughs> the point is what's your mindset and where's your heart? Well, it does speak to the servant element uh, at, a, at, I suppose, a more um, prosaic level. When I was running Redken, the hairdresser brand, which doesn't exist in China, but it's in 40 or so countries. Um, we did this convention once a year for 10,000 customers. And, uh, and one of the ideas that we had was that we, we wanted each of the 10,000 people attending to feel like it was their conference made for them. Mm -hmm. And, and that, uh, so as you're walking around the Las Vegas complex, it's really busy. It's large. If anyone looks lost, you go up to them and you ask them, can I help you proactively? Because that's what you would like if you were them. Right. And then if they drop a handkerchief, I, and I said to the team, I'll be the first to want to pick it up. You know, especially in COVID times, handkerchief might sound make people go, uh oh, but that's what you do. That's that's being showing the example, leading by example. Mm -hmm. So cleaning the toilet, if you have to, by all means, you turn menial into meaningful. <laughs> Um, I think so, it's not just the, oh, go ahead. No, 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 of course. Uh, please finish, Emily. I was going to say, I, I think it's not just the servant leadership you're looking for. It's also just generally the culture fit. So another great question is, what's the most fun you've ever had at work? Because your definition of fun might be different. And again, there's no judgment, but it's a question of fit. Yeah. So I remember we won a number of Olympics projects. So we decided to do something quite silly and fun, which was across the four floors where my teams sit. We decided to do different Olympics activities in-house, you know, and then we gave out awards and there were these wonderful McCann Olympics pins that you could win for gold, silver <laughs> and bronze. And I like to share that because people either respond with, oh my God, that's so much fun. I would love to do that. Or they look at you a little bit kind of weird, like, huh, really? And then no judgment, your definition of fun is different than mine, but you may not love working here. But if you're the, you fall in that former class, then you're going to have a lot of fun here. And fun is fun is super important. Oh, I agree. Um, it, it reminds me of the word family and, and uh, you know, everyone, you know, oh, we, uh, you know, family is important to me. Well, let's say mm -hmm. that Emily Chang's vision of family is certainly different from my vision of family or someone else's vision of family. And, and so when you use the word family or fun, you kind of do need to break that down so that there's a match mm -hmm. underneath the word. And I'm wondering, Emily, that when you have these interviews, to what extent do you feel that the person needs to know who they are first in order to appropriately fit in? Because at the end of the day, you've done a journey on yourself. I as you get older, you sort of hopefully have done some of that, but especially when you're dealing with younger individuals mm. who might say, well, I think this is fun, but that fun is actually what their parents taught them is fun as opposed to what they personally have come to understand as what they feel is fun. I mean, obviously fun for teenagers, one is sort of a, a, a normal thing, but in general, to what extent do you look at the sense of self-awareness 
self-understanding when you're doing these interviews? It depends on the role. I, I guess generally I'm, I'm interviewing for, for managing directors and general managers. So you should have a pretty good sense of self, who you are as a leader, where you think you come in with strengths and where you maybe need some help coming alongside you. Uh, but I would say for the younger people, and I meet a lot of them as well, even before they join, and certainly all of them after they join, I don't think a lot of younger people have a deep sense of self. And, and certainly it wouldn't be fair to say until you found yourself, you know, don't come back. I think curiosity, curiosity, interest to learn, and an open-mindedness is, is more than enough. And in fact, you know, the fact that my boss is willing to put me in this job would say the same, which is there must be a lot I need to learn. As long as I'm curious, I may not know the day to day of how to run an agency, but he trusts me to learn it. And he believes that I'm curious and I have grit. I'm going to power through something and try and figure it out versus throwing the towel. You know, we used to say at Apple when we interviewed, we can teach the rest. My wife worked at Apple for five years. So I have, uh, through her, a little knowledge of that. And I guess uh, the grit is a great word uh, by the book by Angela Duckworth, uh, mm -hmm. a highly good read. So the last piece of what I wanted to talk to you about, Emily, then is, is constructing legacy within a company. Uh, so mm -hmm. I was wondering to what extent you might have used offense and offer as a construct for building a brand, because a lot of the people listening to this will be in business and and so many people are looking for purpose personally now looking for purpose within brands is some people have it written in their annual report and it's just a bunch of bs as we know others <laughs> can be looking for it entrepreneurs uh people in business who are legitimately genuinely interested what what's um what comes to mind as you bring your construct and your system if you will into business so that's exactly what I ended up doing with the last chapter of the book. I, I just pulled it out so I can <laughs> love it. quote myself accurately. So there's the offense and then there's the offer and the intersection between those two is your social legacy. For me, it is creating the sense of comfort for the spirit, whoever we are. And okay, that absolutely trans. Yes, that transcends both home and at work. But to take it one step further, how do you extract from your offer the thing you want to leave behind in the world, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your kid's school. And so this last chapter uh, is all about how do you write your epitaph? So in the workplace, when you change from one part of the company to another, they have a big party for you. There's a punch bowl, there's sheet cake, <laughs> and people say nice things about you. Do you go in with the intention of, here's what I would like them to say about me in two years when I, when I transition to a new role? That's, that's something I've always done and, and was taught by one of my mentors. I think it's a great exercise because it helps you get really clear in your priorities. And it, if you go back to it frequently, it reminds you of where you're on track or maybe where you're skewing a little bit. What about when you leave a job? What do you want them to say was what you left behind? You know, you, you, we've all heard the somewhat negative comments of like, oh, yeah, that person was a flash in the pan or yeah, I'm not sure what that person did. I definitely don't want to be one of those people. What do I want to be known for? And so I wrote this epitaph and I did all the exercises, obviously, to make sure I of felt course, like they you were did. You filled them out. And it was one of the best exercises I did because I'd had something like this, but I hadn't been as intentional or word for word thought out. And when I read it, it's exactly how I want my life to be. So when I do pass on, I would love for people to say this. When I leave work one day, I would equally love for people to say this. 
Mm. So what I wrote was she lived a life of purpose and integrity, every day filled with joy and laughter. She gave outrageously, extended grace unceasingly, and lived her life in such a way that death finds her empty. And at work, wouldn't that be great if I left and you thought I left empty like I left it all here? It's all on the field and it was all for you guys. That's a great way for people to remember me. I absolutely adore that. And um, I, I, I listened to you say I had something like that. And, and certainly the fact is, as you write, how words are insanely powerful. There mm-hmm. is a, a very important concrete rendering of your purpose once you put pen to paper and, yeah. and have those words. And, and I, I, I don't know about you, Emily, but I've done that exercise uh, before. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I've also amended words over time, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. in I, uh, well... I, I initially had gracefully because that I thought that it's, a, it's a, the name of my grandmother, Grace, and it's, it's my daughter's middle name. But then I thought, well, I want to go with elegant as opposed to Grace. And mm-hmm. I thought it was more appropriate for me. And so I adjusted. And have you ever felt the need to adjust it? Or do you have you landed on the thing you're sure on for the rest of your epitaph? I think it should always change a little bit, right? So this epitaph has kind of evolved here and there. There was one thing I used to have written for many years. It was she, it was sort of like what I wanted people to say about me after I, I died, which was, you know, she lived a life of grace and dignity. So grace was also in mind. She found reasons to celebrate shamelessly. She gave outrageously and never gave up. I think that was the phrase. And I dropped the never gave up part, mentor, referring back to earlier in this podcast. When I worked for somebody who I didn't feel was a very healthy individual, and though I felt deep purpose in protecting my teams from her or from creating a better workplace culture, ultimately I realized maybe this isn't something I can achieve on my own. And maybe it is good to give up. Maybe it's better to give up. Not as in, I don't want to try hard anymore because I'm tired, but in some things are better to cut bait and reinvest our worthy selves and our time and our resources where they can be better utilized, where they can better land and where they're better appreciated. So in the question I asked before about at work, my, um, I, um, what I was actually looking for was not how you as an individual at work express your purpose, but more as a brand. What is the purpose of the brand? So, you know, uh, Amazon's, is to be the earth's most customer-centric organization um, and so on. So what I was thinking about was using your construct of, of, of offense and offer as an enterprise at the enterprise level. Have you ever tried that into a customer as they, you know, come up with a, you know, Hey, here's my brief, but sometimes companies, entrepreneurs, uh, don't have a real purpose or legacy. Have you pushed that into enterprise land? This specific model? No, but yeah. I'll think about it. But I guess it's very congruent with what McCann speaks to, which is helping brands earn meaningful roles in people's lives. It's yeah. it's very similar. And there's a different construct uh, in our operating system that we use at McCann, which is the 6C model. So I guess to me, it's less about the specific model. It's about at the desired outcome. And if that's yeah. the, the consistent thread between what I would like to do with my life and what McCann seeks to do as an organization, that's pretty great. <laughs> well, I, you know, and, and doing this meaningful work, I, I have to imagine that certainly that I would 
want to understand how this fits in with the enterprise's strategic objectives, not just ticking a box, mm -hmm. greenwashing and so on. So I, I, I uh, it made me think anyway, because I, I, I always like to wonder, and it feels like a very interesting way for a company to, to approach creation of a purpose. Um, and again, you know, I think personifying, personalizing business is what it's all about and bringing that mm -hmm. sense of, of real integrity. Um, I, I write about being employee first, customer centric and, and having mm -hmm. each individual feel fulfilled, but then having to have them match or overlap, you call it fitting in, if you will, with the purpose of the organization. Emily, absolute treats. I really, I love your energy. Uh, certainly your message is, is powerful. There's no sideways question I was able to ask you that derailed you from your, your, your line. It was beautiful. Um, how can anybody follow you? What's the best way for, where do you, where do you exist outside of uh, your office, if you will, where people could follow you? And, and of course, how can someone get your lovely book? Oh, the book is available everywhere, Amazon.com, all the, the major distribution channels. You can find me on my website, social-legacy.com, Facebook, Instagram, at The Spare Room Book. And then separately, I blog probably more professionally on LinkedIn, and you can find me at Emily Chang 8621 You are wonderful. Emily, thank you very much again. And so are you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash MinterDial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Revenges and struggle with deceit 
live for the challenge so life's not incomplete what's wrong with challenge i know soon we all die i like the feel of a stranger tucked around me precipitating the danger to feel free trust in my reason and let me show you why i'm a convinced man practicing my lines i'm a convinced man here in these confines a convinced man in the arms of a woman i'm a convinced man fit to the test i'm a convinced man Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.